Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to back to the Petronos podcast. Um, as you can see, I am not in my usual dining room setting. Um, I'm joined by an incredible guest, and this is a, a really treat for, for myself um, and for listeners. We are actually in, we're in Denver, Colorado today. This is uh, Tuesday, November 29, 2022. It's snowing outside. We're just coming off of a Thanksgiving week, and um, we are in the Liberty, well, Liberty Energy offices, formerly Liberty Oilfield Services, for folks um, who, who are changing, are understanding the name change. Uh, but we're in the offices of Liberty Energy right downtown Denver, and I am joined by an awesome guest. For this in-person recording, um, his name is Dr. John Constable, and um, he has. You have a few different, you know, you do a few different things, but you are an expert on European energy policy. You've written some incredible. Uh, you've written some very interesting papers. Um, been on some podcasts. I might give you, you know, a few seconds just to introduce yourself and your background. Right. I'm an energy analyst. I'm a lapsed academic. I was at Kyoto and Cambridge, uh, in the humanities actually, but I bailed out to write about energy. Uh, and I now do it full-time. Wonderful. Uh, uh, and it's become quite something of an international reputation since I'm prepared to say very critical things about European policy, and so many other people are not. But these things happen to be true, so they need to be said. Wonderful. Well, then you fit in the Petronas podcast just fine because I'm critical of everybody's energy policy. I've uh, listened. And, I've listened you know, I've heard you say yeah. critical things. Uh, so, but the two pa- so there's a couple of papers, and just to give listeners a little bit of a check, and I'll I'll, I'll give the timestamp for oil prices and everything in just a second. But just to get people teed up and interested is that you know one of the papers is called Europe's Green Experiment: A Costly fa- Failure in Unilateral Climate Policy, and another one is um, you know the Energy of Nations: Energy Blindness is Leading to to Policy blunder and so we'll talk about some of these things and I think a couple things I want to really do today with you is um, give listeners you know I we don't often get a chance to get into European energy policy deeply to talk about the cost talk about the run-up to this uh, energy you know the where we got to in this energy crisis which I've spent a lot of time talking with clients a lot of time giving public presentations and explaining where you know the the price spike and and how we actually got here Mm -hmm. um, which wasn't exactly just the war in Ukraine. It happened, you know, no, actually true, yeah. 2020 and 2021. Um, but to begin, I think we're going to start with, so November 29th, 2022, WTI is hanging around the 77.39 level. Last I checked, Brent is 83.06. Henry Hub 7.27. We've seen gas come up. We're seeing pressure on oil. Um, this is not the podcast to talk about it, but there's an incredible amount of uh, stuff going on within China right now. Um, I don't think it's positive. The market's viewing it a little positively, but we are seeing pressure on on, on oil prices because of um, bad macroeconomics, stuff that's going on in China, um, and it looks like OPEC Plus may actually, you know, OPEC Plus is likely to actually cut production to bring those prices up. Dutch TTF, and this is very relevant for this conversation, is about 40 bucks. We're just under 40. We're at 39.14. Um, the 10-year yield and 30-year mortgage, I, I didn't get the exact numbers this morning, but they are under 4% for the 10-year yield. Mortgage is, is hanging around 6 a 6.6% and change, um, and that's a lot of pressure from a Fed pivot, uh, or, or thinking there'd be a Fed pivot and some lower inflationary reads we've had in the past couple weeks. Um, but that all being said, we've timestamped this, we know the date, we know what's going on, um, and we know that it's winter in Europe. And I think a lot of Americans are, we also know that we're sending lots of 
liquefied natural gas to Europe right now. Um, and so I'd love to start with, you know, the state of um, the energy market or the state of the energy market sort of in Europe and energy policies. And, you know, we talked on the phone and we had a, a million different directions with conversation. Mm -hmm. But I'd love to just know right now, given the state of the market, what's what's happening right now in Europe and, and in the UK? Right. Um, and I'm, I'm traveling, I'm leaving to London tomorrow. So what can I expect to see? Well, the question about the markets is actually the wrong question because there is not much market left in Europe. Uh, no official government documents in the UK are already using the term administrative pricing. And this has been going on for some time. So we, we, don't, we have so little market. Most of the costs imposed on the consumer in the electricity sector in the UK, for example, are now the result of policy and not of market pricing. So the, when you're asking the state of what is it, it's really the state of policy and the state of what's actually happening on the ground, what's the physical state of the system. Um, it, markets in oil and gas are a little bit better because they, they have undistorted right. markets for heating and also transport. But distortions are moving into those areas already and the effects are beginning to be seen. So the state at present is that we're seeing yet another unfolding of, uh, of the coll slow collapse of European energy policy. This is not an acute crisis, as you've said yourself several times in your podcasts, the Ukraine event did not cause the current situation. This current difficulty has been decades in the making, and it will be decades to clear it up. This is a very long-run disaster. Can we talk about the sort of that run-up of, um, I mean, Chris Wright um, here at Liberty and myself, I think I've, I've heard him talk about it in his speeches and myself of talking about sort of quadrupling, I mean, huge astronomical increases in UK utility prices. Um, mm -hmm. Something I was following, you know, last summer was that you could go on the Ofgem website, you know, that you could go on the Ofgem as a, a regulatory body um, for... The Office of Gas yes, and Electricity Yes, Gas thank you. Um, in the UK, and you could go and then it would say 61, you know, utility providers pick from, and then you know these utility providers part went on under left, right, and center. So yeah. now you have a handful left, and you know what consumers were doing. Obviously, they had little, you know, recourse of the handful of cons of utility providers left. But if you're watching energy prices, and this was sort of the October, September, and October, where we're in 2021, where we really saw these these prices starting to spike for electricity prices, yeah. and then you know every time we'd hear another story from the UK saying, oh well we increased the, the cap price. Um, so they kept increasing the caps. And, and we hear different numbers, but, you know, the average family, the average household is capped at sort of, you know, two, a certain pounds per month. I don't know where that's at right now or what that capping, but there's pretty wide ranges because when you hear about the, from the UK government, it's that, you know, it's 500 pounds per month that they're capped at or 2,000 pounds per month or it's an average of 2,000 pounds per year. But when you actually hear different reporting, people are saying as small businesses, as coffee shops, as pubs, they were paying. People have no idea actually what they're going to be paying. And uh, when is a cap not a cap? Well, when it's uh, an off-gem cap because it's changed so often. Well, yeah, and, actually and, they're not, what is happening. and they're paying astronomical. I mean, these folks are, at least in Europe, folks are talking about paying more for electricity than they are for rent, um, yeah. which is which is huge. That means we're paying thousands of euros, you know, probably for electricity. But in the UK, you're seeing these these rising rates, and I think particularly in that that point you're making of it that we've talked about not being, you know, this didn't start with Ukraine, and Ukraine certainly the war in Ukraine certainly exacerbated it. But it was sort of actually Putin's sort of opening, I think, it, and, and leverage is that you know the numbers, and I, I point this out, is that 55 BCF a day is roughly in 2021 what the UK and Europe were consuming, mm. um, and 20 BCF a day is what Europe and um, and the UK were producing, and so that gap had to be filled, and largely um, yeah. the gap is filled by by Russia. So that massive gap. 
um, is significant because the consumption really hasn't changed. And you point out, I mean, I'm back to oh, folding a couple things in there because I want to get into your papers, but you point out um, consumption has really actually, and, and electricity consumption has really actually... Oh, declined. this is the big story actually yeah. in the UK and in Europe generally too, and particularly important for uh, America because you're about to do what we did. The Inflation Reduction Act is effectively a European style. Oh, we will definitely get into policy. that, yes. yes. Now, what, when did, what's, what's really happened in the, the UK is that we've uh, increased energy prices through policy since the early 2000s. Uh, 2005 being a key moment, key date, was when the policy costs really started to bite, and energy consumption has started to fall. In the UK, uh, total primary energy has fallen by about 30%, and it's now back at 1950s levels, in spite of a rising population. Electricity consumption in the UK has fallen by around about 22% since 2005. It's now back at levels last seen in the late 1980s. That's a terrible indicator. And electricity is the indicator of a modern society. It's a very, very effective, low-entropy energy carrier. We should be using more of it, not less. So explain that a little more, because I know you talk about that in both your papers. I've li you, you mentioned this on podcasts, and I think, uh, I think you know, folks in uh, on the environmental side, you know, folks in the environmental community on the renewable side would say well, it's great if we're using electricity, if we're consuming less, that's a positive, right? And well, it's very negative indeed, uh, and it's a really serious indication of societal problems. And uh, really economic. And deep, so deep right. economic problems, uh, in, in fact. Uh, I mean, uh, Jevons pointed this out, based on Liebig's work as well, that the, uh, an efficiency uh, measure in a, a conversion process doesn't reduce consumption. It actually increases it. Firstly, it increases demand for that particular service because it's now cheaper to use. There may be a temporary elastic limit. So uh, what happens then? Well, the energy that you've conserved is simply transferred to another human need that hasn't been met before. Right. So efficiency measures actually increase consumption always always never otherwise yes they can be used to buffer reductions in energy consumption which may be result from other effects but efficiency measures never actually cause those conservation measures so when we see at least these downturns in the european curves we know it's not efficiency it's something else and then you look at prices retail prices for consumers and of course you see uh, that they're enormously above the G20, non-EU G20, both for industry and for households, and that's true for electricity, natural gas, and indeed for transport. Interesting in electricity, you look at the, retail, the wholesale prices for uh, the non-EU G20 and the EU, they're actually very similar. So what does that tell us? It tells us that the difference is enormous uh, premium that European customers are paying. That's the result of policy. It's nothing to do with the underlying well, wholesale price. So there's a few things with this that I want to get into is that, um, I mean, many, many things. Um, but so the cost is one thing is that it's extremely expensive. And a lot of folks, I'd like to put a few numbers to that because and you, you actually put some in your in your paper of, you know, some six, 63 billion, I think, euros per year of subsidies. Um, but we know that Germany has extremely high electricity costs. We know that the UK has mm -hmm. extremely high electricity costs. And something I was looking at last, even, you know, in 2021, the summer of 2021, was the, you know, the simply that there was a, um, nearly a 25% tax on utility, on electricity prices in the UK for basically a, yeah, an, exactly. e, an ESG tax. And I thought that is in, it was incredibly painful then, even more incredibly painful now, um, and something that you know I liken to the policies that we're we're seeing, especially in Colorado. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not a big fan of Excel. I'm not a big fan of them shoving, you know, getting rid of all the coal-fired power plants mm -hmm. and shoving in the renewables and and then passing all the costs to the consumers and you know and not worrying about grid reliability. But in the UK, in particular, 
what I noticed was that it was the fall of last year. Um, you guys break it. You have a quarterly report. The government puts out a quarterly report, which is actually quite good because um, you can't find this for Europe. But you had record volumes of uh, co generation capacity for the ability to generate, you know, uh, electricity from solar and from wind. Um, I guess there, were, there was a little uh, bio in there as well, but you actually had record under you know, it undershot, right? So you had all the capacity to generate wind and solar and build a ton of offshore wind or, um, and all these solar panels. However, the generation didn't actually come from that. And that was what was one of the big spikes in the, started driving the, the price spike in energy. So all this capacity generation, wind and solar, and the report actually stated that there wasn't enough sun and there wasn't enough, uh, there wasn't enough wind. Mm. Um, and typically, it, that usually works together when it's too hot. Um, when it's too hot, the wind isn't blowing. Um, yes, and there are all sorts of correlations in there. Low wind years happen to be low rain years. So you get, Very if you're, good point. If you're relying yeah. on hydro um, to support you in a low wind year, forget it, you're going to have low hydro as well. Um, these are all completely uh, predicted. I, I sponsored work in the middle 2000, 2008, which modeled the output of a nationwide wind fleet of about 25 to 30 gigawatts in the UK. And we could see that there will be prolonged periods when there will be very, very low wind indeed. And that is the case today, actually, in the UK. So what, what happened yeah. there exactly? So we know this is, because, and I, I know you want to get into this with the US Inflation Reduction Act and what's going on here mm -hmm. and why we're shoving, you know, wind and solar into the grid like crazy. But in the UK, that's really, it's sort of, you have sort of equal natural gas uh, power generation and, and wind generation. Um, and, you know, the UK is not someplace I would think build solar panels because it's not that sunny all the time. Um, we so have a lot of solar, actually. We have more than 12 gigawatts, right. actually, right but now. Very low productivity, load factors absolutely. are less than 10%. So it was a mistake. So I think some of your pay, and you allude to this, is what, how did you get here? You know, with the well, how do we get so much installed? Well, we have subsidized it dramatically. Uh, you know, the, the consumer has been paying uh, up until quite recently um, well over seven billion pounds per year, seven billion dollars a year approximately in income top up for uh, renewable generators. So that's transfer from consumers right. to investors in renewables equipment. So, of course, when you start throwing consumer funds around like that, you're right. going to get a lot of new capacity. Right. And some of the numbers I presented in that uh, in a Europe's Green Experiment paper, extracted from consultants' reports for the European Union itself, show that from 2008 to 2018, and up to the present day, if you add further numbers, we've spent in the Europe something like $800 billion um, subsidizing renewables. We have not reduced costs. Now, this is a very important point. You'll hear propaganda from the industry claiming that they have actually reduced capex or at least the cost they claim. You look at audited financial statements for wind farms and solar companies, you find their capex has not fallen very significantly. Right. And indeed, the OPEX for wind is rising. Oh, it's, it's, inc it's incredible. It's, it's, it's actually... It's terribly obvious, really. All you have to do is go and look at the audited financial statements. Why don't people do this? Why don't governments actually come clean with us and say they haven't actually achieved the cost reductions they claimed? So the subsidy has not been successful. And the introduction of these very large wind and solar fleets has not protected us against spikes in the fossil fuel markets, as mm -hmm. we've seen when you have this exogenous shock, the invasion of Ukraine. In some sense, it's not a, a random exogenous shock, but as you suggested, I think Russia decided this was quite a good moment to strike. The Europeans are quite exposed, because what introduce, uh, introducing all these stochastic generators has done is left the entire European system critically dependent on natural gas to secure supply. Right. The entire thing hangs by a single thread. So that's why it's so serious. We, ha we, we in the UK certainly can't fall back on uh, coal. The Germans can. They have actually retained quite a lot of their coal generation capacity. They have. This is sort of a dirty secret in Germany, but uh, an open secret. 
The other thing that you've mentioned also is that the productivity of the European electricity supply industry has fallen very dramatically, partly because you've got these enormous expansions in wind and solar. So the total installed capacity in Europe has risen very, very significantly due to the subsidies because of the addition of wind and right. solar. And are those, so are those, um, I mean, there's a, there's a ton of information in there, but so that tax I was mentioning or that ESG, that what you see on the utility, is that part of the subsidies, that, that massive yes. extra that everyone's paying? Well, there are, there are several different subsidies and they vary from state to state in the EU. Uh, every mechanism is different. Right. Like, we have no one carbon price. Maybe it would have been sensible if we had, mm -hmm. we have probably 20 or 30, maybe more, in okay. five different carbon prices. Uh, in, in the UK, we have several different subsidy mechanisms. We have a feed-in tariff, we have a renewables obligation, and we have contracts for difference, which aren't actually contracts, of course. And these are actually surcharges on bills. There are also covert subsidies. So we actually have legislation embedded in our Companies Act, which places a burden on companies to try to adopt renewable sources. Companies Act is very significant because it's backed up by criminal sanctions. So little known fact, a lot of company directors don't appreciate this now in the UK, but it is a criminal offence not to report or to misreport your energy consumption and your carbon emissions. Well, of course, many big companies are aware of this and they're moving towards renewables because they fear prosecution or lawfare from green NGOs. So that's a covert subsidy to renewables. But the financial subsidies are very obvious and of course there's the emissions trading scheme as well. Right. And the UK which emissions trading scheme which increases costs to right. consumers in addition. So that all these, okay, so you have all these costs um, and we don't have in the U.S. yet a forced carbon system where, where companies are worried about that. Mm. Um, but if, if, you know, I mean, I, I do follow the stuff in the U.K., not to the extent that you do, but if you're just listening to BP's earnings call, um, I always tell people this, but it, you have to literally remind yourself that it's, it's BP's earnings call because there's so much talk about wind in there. Now, they've had, a, it, and you can sort of pull yourself back and under look at it. It's clearly the UK or the, clearly um, BP wants to have a. They, they talk about the circular economy and everything, mm -hmm. and they they want the hydrogen and they want the they have the convenience stores and and they want their that everybody to recharge you know at the convenience stores and, and charge their Teslas or whatever they're driving, and they have this all this offshore wind and they're eventually going to bring it all together. I mean at the time I think a few earnings calls ago the CEO of BP hadn't even driven an uh, electric vehicle so he didn't even know what it was like to charge at one of these stations he was talking about where he was bragging about drinking eating a donut and getting a coffee and spending your time at the shop while you're waiting for it to charge. Um, but the the offshore wind was a really serious thing and it's been something that's that investors are critical of because they want to know how much should they pay for it and when are they going to get their money back. And, you know, things that BP has alluded to is that even when they were talking about how clean and green their Russian facilities were, that they were actually greener. There were actually less emissions than any of their oil in the, in the world, which was ludicrous. Um, and those are gone now anyway. Um, but the wind was that they basically said there was a 10-year payback and they had several issues within the earnings calls of how much they actually paid you know what did you actually pay for the for the acreage and you know they would say hey look we didn't we didn't overpay and the fact that we'll tell you we didn't overpay because we were bidding on some European stuff and we actually didn't buy it because it was too expensive and that should prove to you that you know we can we, we mm. can restrain ourselves and I thought oh man that is this is not a good metric if you're just saying okay well we didn't buy this because it was too expensive so no one knows exactly the payment and I think it's really serious because in you know in this business in shale in, in US oil and gas 
you know, productivity is a really big deal. So when you talk yeah. about the productivity of your output, I mean, I have been criticized in Oxford every time I go and talk on U.S. Shale of, you know, what is the productivity of these wells? And you know, how do they perform on a, a barrels per foot basis? And, you know, when you have di diminishing marginal returns or any declining productivity in anything, um, society, economy, anything, yeah. it's an issue. So, you know, I always find it, you know, especially when I'm talking about this to, you know, it's not just the cost of, Yes, wind, offshore wind is very expensive in the UK. We don't even know what it costs, the payback period, etc. And then people talk about levelized cost of energy and, and with a subsidy. Which is completely inappropriate for renewables it, it, anyway. We it, shouldn't it, be using levelized cost at all. I think, and I think yeah. we're really seeing that in offshore in the US, is that people are talking about these, and we don't have enough, we actually don't have enough wind generation, you know, good enough wind generation, I think, or in the US. But offshore US on the East Coast, the levelized cost of energy, you know, they're trying to shove this, the, the wind in, and, you know, the first thing I always ask is, well, how do you connect it? How does it actually get into the grid, and where's your sort of backup? And I think this is where I'm fascinated by the UK is, you know, you shoved all these renewables in, but what is the backup? And it seems like that, that you have to have that, gas, that natural gas backup. It's only natural gas now that responds. It's, it's the load-flowing plant. Uh, in the UK. You're quite right about the opacity uh, of data on CapEx and OpEx for wind. They have been very opaque about it. And this is one of the reasons why I commissioned uh, another large study published by the charity that I run in the UK, Renewable Energy Foundation. Uh, we're not pro-renewables, we just right. know a lot about it. I mean, the last time I checked, Cancer UK, which is a UK charity, wasn't in favour of cancer. They just know a lot about it. Uh, that's the same with us. We did a big study on the, the uh, CapEx and OpEx. Uh, for offshore wind. We found a lot of useful data in audited financial statements. Mm -hmm. But this can become uh, quite cloudy for people when they start looking at public statements uh, and sort of overhead statements because the, uh, the data is often not given in any real detail and the lifetime of the plant is given in very optimistic terms. Uh, 28, 25 years. Well, anybody thinks a rotating plant is going to last 25 years in the North Sea without very high operations and maintenance costs is clearly not a realistic person. I mean, it's a, a very difficult right. environment. Are you, and are you looking at, um, you know, you can look at Siemens even, talking about the rising costs of their offshore wind terminals. There's nobody that's, yeah. all the components to build these things has gone up. The actual, um, the actual, you know, wires and stuff that you're using to actually grid this in to your, you know, you have to take this from offshore, you have to yeah. put lines into your actual facilities. And we already, we have massive issues with building transmission in the U.S. You see, you guys seem to have a yeah. less, less oh, no, of it's very, very difficult to build a transmission line in the U.K. It's a densely populated country, right. so very hard to do that. Uh, yes, the, a lot of propaganda coming out of the renewables industry about falling costs. Uh, tended to coincide with relatively low fossil fuel prices, right. actually. Yeah, Not surprising, because that's one of the principal outputs, uh, inputs for the manufacturing of renewables. When mm -hmm. fossil fuels start to become more expensive, then, of course, the cost of making wind turbines... And when interest and rates go up. And when interest rates and go up, And, you yes. know, this is the Green Revolution. So I think there's a, no, a lot of death knells into this that, that the renewable side... And, and to be fair, if you talk to folks in the wind community and, you know, directly in the solar community, I think some people that work in it are a little more honest than, you know, the environmentalists and the propaganda sort of around it. That being said, though, um, you know, the UK, and I know offshore wind turbines are not necessarily all made in China. Most of the onshore wind turbines, uh, the majority of onshore wind turbines, are made in China, are made in the province of Xinjiang. Um, I know I always I'm probably pronounce that incorrectly. Um, that is made from coal-fired power generation. That is made from forced labor. Um, mm -hmm. China is riddled with issues, but it is very concerning to me that Europe has, you know, sort of doubled down on renewables, like high costs, low grid reliability and completely got in bed with China even after they've gotten in bed with Russia and that mm -hmm. didn't work out and um, Olaf Scholz is going over to Germany or is going over to just went over to China with 12 CEOs the climate policy trumps absolutely everything. absolutely and that, you know? 
and the solar panels is the biggest thing is because solar panel purchases in Europe, and I'm sure you know this, but would love your, your thoughts on this, is solar panel purchases in Europe have went up by nearly a quarter since the war in Ukraine. They've come from China. They've come from the province of mm -hmm. Xinjiang. And it's mind-blowing because China's funding the war. Um, China's literally writing checks and funding the war and, and with their trade with, with Russia. And they're benefiting significantly because of all just Europe is just doubling down on these solar panels. And it's kind of a lot. And the red, the, what I always hear from Europeans is, but once we have the solar panels installed, we won't need all this stuff later. And it just it seems to be missing reality. Well, it's quite wrong, actually. Um, solar panels do not have a very long life actually, and a lot of the components in it have short lives, the inverters are short, need to be replaced quite frequently. Uh, and uh, with our experience already shows that having very large renewable fleets, we do have an awful lot in Europe, an awful lot in Britain, uh, do not protect you against fossil fuel prices. You need them to guarantee security of supply. In effect, what you have at present in Europe uh, is not a renewable system. You have a less productive and effective fossil fuel system with a bit of nuclear. So you look at the capacity ch uh, curves that's total capacities for thermal capacity, uh, combustion capacity, uh, and uh, thermal overall, you'll see that it's falling. But of course, demand has also been falling, and but capacity, total capacity has been rising because we put in so much wind and solar. So the fleet load factor has fallen from about 55-60% in the 1990s down to about 35-36% present. Again, that's because of falling demand and rising capacity. So you've got a death spiral here. Right where prices are inevitably going to get uh, higher and higher. Higher prices force down demand, more renewables reduce the productivity of the generation fleet. This, is, this has no end. What's the European Union's response? They've embraced the signs of failure and declared them now to be a policy objective. So the forward plans for European Union policies are to actually reduce energy consumption still further. And this, as just, I just noted, is it's a recipe for economic contraction. Now, you cannot reduce energy consumption without affecting your economic performance. Living standards are probably already stand falling in Europe very significantly because of these policies. Two and two have not yet been put together by the general public. Perhaps they never will. I think they will at some point realize that this is the result of that. We're also seeing general still weakening. We can't afford the defense budgets. You know, we're becoming indefensible. This is relentlessly positive uh, for uh, China and then they probably know it. And these are not fools. For that, Leslie Paul's for China, and for Russia, and for anyone who wants to... For anybody to, uh, who understands the thermodynamics. Well, and also just an instable and, um, you know, economically, it, the pain that Europe is experiencing. And so I think you're, you're painting a wonderful picture of this has been decades in the making. But yeah. you know, we've heard the European Central Bank... We've, we've heard... All, everyone leading in, in, from the European fiscal side or monetary side say we are looking through quote we are looking through the um, basically they were they were looking through inflation for the energy transition so before prices spiked before we saw all the craziness um, with the war in Ukraine um, as prices were spiking last fall they basically said hey we have to because of the energy transition and because we're doing this. Um, this is the European Central Bank saying this, that we have to look through, we have to experience some inflation. And so they were saying, you know, this is your European Central Bank. This is, you know, monetary policy is saying we're so committed to climate policies that mm. we're going to experience this inflation. We're just going to get through it and it'll be fine. And that's the ramifications for this are so significant. And then, you know, now you have very high renewable costs and you have very high, you know, conventional fuel costs, and you have a, a declining economy. And I think a lot of people forget that, you know, Germany produces stuff, 
and they sell stuff. And you know, they did very well when gas pri- natural gas prices were low, and, and particularly when oil prices were low. Industrialized economies do well when oil prices are low, and um, I think it's, it's, it's fascinating that no one pays attention to that economic growth and just economic stability is is what creates you know normality and and if we don't have any I mean, we're, if we're looking at a downward spiral of economic growth and economic stability in Europe, this is really problematic. Not just for from an energy standpoint and economy, but actually from war and volatility and strife. Um, and you know, Russia saw their opening. They have maximum leverage. Um, very you know, little pain. To, I mean, they have pain economically. It hasn't worked out for them as it happens, but uh, right. yeah, they didn't work out the plan. But they they thought it was a good moment to to strike. Um, but they're still doing it. They're, well, they're they're in um, over their shoes now. They've got to carry on, I suppose. All this was completely foreseeable. I mean, one of the great surprises is that Europe uh, first industrialized and uh, it developed thermodynamics. You know, thermodynamics is a product of uh, Northwestern Europe. And yet we seem to have forgotten all that. Why did we think that adding high entropy, low quality fuels in bulk from wind and solar was actually going to be a, uh, a support to economic growth? Our own history shows that it's low entropy, high quality fuels coal initially in the UK and in Holland, uh, peat of course simultaneously, that actually created these very large energy returns which created both freedom and economic growth. Can you break that down, explain, uh, explain what you mean by ent- explain entropy to, the, to listeners and I think you're going to get into the, your great thing of uh, the animals and, and don't derive heat sources from well, wind or solar, so anyways, I, if you can get into that, that would be great. Okay, um, well, we'll start off with the animals then. I mean, uh, think about it. There are no organisms, none, that derive their fundamental metabolic energy from wind. It's too chaotic. It's too close to random heat to be useful you know, for fundamental metabolic energy. Yes, birds glide on it. Right? Yes, plants use it as a seed dispersal mechanism, but not for fundamental metabolic energy. If it was actually a really attractive energy source, there would be something there. It's not, after all, high temperature. It's not dangerous to living tissue or anything. You can actually extract it, but no, no. And the organisms that do derive fundamental metabolic energy from sun, plants, are simple and stationary. So you can't get much complexity out of this. So think physically about the real economy is generated a very, very low entropy state. We look around us, up this high, these high windows here in Denver, the, everything around us, this is enormously distant from thermodynamic equilibrium. It's incredibly improbable. How did it get here? Energy conversions. Mm-hmm. And we've been converting energy, superior energy, which has a very high energy return on energy invested. There's lots left over after you've extracted, converted, and delivered it to consumers. So you can create and critically to maintain the improbability in the human sphere. When you use low quality fuels, you're going to have a very thin margin, as we did in the past. You know, the, the organic economies of the past, this has been very closely studied now by economic historians at Cambridge particularly, mm-hmm. under Anthony Wrigley, um, very, very fine books. I recommend these books strongly to you and your listeners. Wonderful. Uh, Energy and the English Industrial Revolution, okay. superb studies on this, that the, the organic economies were dominated by their energy sector, which was land. So the prestige of the European aristocracy, you know, that's why people watch Downton Abbey today, mm-hmm. is that they owned practically all the improved capital in the economy. It was on the land. And indeed, a European aristocrat in, say, the 1650s, 1700s, they were employing 75% of the workforce on the land. That was their energy sector. The introduction of high-quality fuels with much higher margins meant that the power of landowners was broken. But coal owners did not replace them. That created human freedom. So you get an enormous explosion 
after the introduction of coal in employment types, in much larger secondary and tertiary sectors, for example, in the English economy, again, all studied by the Cambridge Population mm -hmm. Research Group. And people have a choice. They have freedom of employment. They can right. do many more right. things. And this is all predictable from the thermodynamics of the fuels. Inferior fuels, close to random heat, like wind and, and sun, are going to create smaller economies with much larger uh, energy sectors within them, dominating them. This won't be socially acceptable to people. And when I give these sorts of talks on platforms, people say to me, John, you're saying we can't have the green economy. And the answer is, no, you can have it, but you won't like it when you've got it. Right. Because it will be a return to the kind of illiberal past when people, there's very little wealth outside the energy sector. Those who own the energy sector have enormous socio-political mm -hmm. power. And we've got used to being able to do pretty much what we like. And we won't like being told what to do in the future. I think, and that's why there was a, if, if, you, if you type in uh, Dr. John Constable in podcasts, there's some things that pop up. And there was some interesting podcasts that you were on um, that were talking about likening. Um, and obviously, we're in Liberty Energy's offices. But liberty and energy um, are pretty big deals yeah. and, and actually fold well together nicely. As Chris Wright says, you talk about in that, um, and it's interesting because I think I read this, uh, so this, this, it's on Quillette, but it's the energy of nations. And some of the feedback on this is interesting because I, I, I was looking at the people posting on this and, um, you know, if I listen to all the, the people that people post on my stuff, um, you know, I, I don't even pay attention to it. But you have this, this sort of, what I saw is UK and European criticism of, you know, this sounds like a, somebody who doesn't know what they're talking something about oil companies and and somebody said quote we're honestly going to compare 19th century coal consumption to now and i was i was sort of mind blown because my entire career this is always people like we just don't use that much coal and it's declining and i think that's what a lot of folks don't really realize is we haven't declined coal consumption and not only have we haven't declined it particularly in 2021 and now with this this energy crisis we're increasing it considerably yes. especially in the places that are willing to do it well, not but there is no energy transition I, I absolutely can't, I mean, 100%. There, there is there no energy transition and it's extraordinary that uh, even something like Fatih Birol the International Energy oh, Agency mm. will will actually say this on public platforms it's extraordinary because the data that his own agency publishes quite, shows quite clearly that this hasn't happened. 1971, total renewables, including sub-Saharan you know, burning of sticks, is around about 13%. Today, it's around about 15%. But energy consumption has hugely increased over that period. Right. Most of that expansion has, is the result of fossil fuels. Right. So the energy transition is a myth. And indeed, historically, there ha never has been uh, an energy transition. There has not. likes to say that they're slow. I, I don't disagree with him, except that they don't exist at all. So when you add superior fuels, all the sources of energy expand. So you can see this in, your, in English data. We expanded our coal consumption dramatically through the 15th and 16th centuries, long before the classical industrial revolution, right. by the way. So in 1700, England was 50% energy dependent on coal. And so we were widely, wildly divergent as an economy as early as 1700. Critically important because we, the possession of those superior fuels meant that we could improve our use of wind and indeed water. So right. you get a lot of uh, uh, hydropower, actually, mechanical energy for mills, as a result of superior castings due to the right. important of coal. So there is no energy transition. There never has been any energy transition. You get energy additions, mm -hmm. in fact. So we're expecting something, a transition to renewables, which is thermodynamically unlikely in principle, in fact impossible in my view, and has no historical precedent. Why are we being so irrational about this? And I find this frustrating because I'm not programmatically opposed to having a climate policy. Right. It's rational to have a climate policy, but the climate policy has to be rational, and they just aren't. Well, it's uh, been, it's, 
you know, in many ways, I think it's, and this is something we can talk about because I, you know, how do you fix it is um, it's been hijacked. So I get very frustrated when, you know, B BBC does great coverage on many things, but they're very climate biased. Um, they spend a good section of every every podcast, every news source now on climate. And, um, you know, when they talk about Greta Thunberg, and they gave a little bit of criticism in her recent book called The Climate Book, um, they didn't say anything. It just said, you know, we need to do something. And the problem is, is that, you know, people don't like necessarily like uh, Colorado Oil and Gas Association. They don't mm -hmm. like some of the things because it's an advocacy organization and it supports, it, it represents oil and gas. It's a lobbying group. Um, American Petroleum Institute, API, is a lobbying group on behalf of, mm -hmm. um, on the National Rifle Association is a lobbying group on half of, of, of the rifle industry or, or of the gun industry. Um, Fatih Barol is now a lobbyist and, and needs to be represented and, and called out as one as an advocate for the renewable industry yes. um, and, and for China yes. and because all of it's coming from China. And that is something that, you know, is no, there, it's no longer credible information. I mean, we still use it, but it's very frustrating. I when agree about the International Energy Agency. The decay of the IEA is actually a tragedy. It is a, tra it's a tragedy. It was, it was but a great, great institution. It was. And um, the fundamental data in there is still very good. I mean, we all have to use it. It collects into national right. data and produces it in, in similar uh, you know, based formats, which is very, very useful. But the press releases and, uh, coming out of the IEA are a disgrace, actually. I mean, as we just said, there is no energy transition. They keep on suggesting there is such a thing. Well, and they've actually said, they yeah. said in 2020 that, they're go that they, they have made a clear statement that in 2020 that they would be, as, they, as we come out of this, uh, out of COVID, that they were, that they didn't say we're advocating, but they said we need to be, be coming out of this cleaner and greener. Well, you know, that's a, that you're advocating for something. And so immediately if you start talking to people, you know, within the industry, I mean, if you're, you, you know this, you're in the space, but, you know, go around the world, go to folks in Washington and London and, and Europe, people were sort of really confused about what was going on within the IEA of, yes, everybody wanted to be, go green. And I would say this of Columbia University um, and, and a lot of credible institutions that folks had of these energy organizations have completely fallen off a cliff of that it is come hell or high water, we're going to have this transition. And the more it's sort of threatened, the more everyone sort of doubles down on it. And I think the problem is, is that, you know, you can force it, we, we can force this in. I don't, I don't think it'll be forced into the U.S. as much because we'll have massive economic repercussions. But as you're forcing it in, the economic repercussions are real, and I think you're seeing them in Europe and the U.K. Yeah. And then that money, and according to McKinsey, what the energy transition needs nine trillion dollars a year, and that's two hundred you know fifty two hundred seventy six trillion dollars total. The money isn't there. The, the economy is declining. The people will. This just will not happen. You know, it's it's already sort of crumbling as we see it. So I'm curious, as given that what we're seeing, we know it's sort of crumbling and the economy is declining, is that you know will there there won't be a come to Jesus moment in Europe because we know that um, something you hear in the industry a lot here is that, okay, people always ask me, are we seeing France change their stance on, on shale mm -hmm. gas? Are we seeing, you know, are we seeing folks change their view and vantage point on LNG? Are they going to be committed to bringing in more LNG from, from the U.S.? So how is this sort of playing out as we speak? You're saying, will there be an awakening? Yes. Is there sort so, of a something yes. of one? I or? think one shouldn't rely on it. And I, I'm uh, you know, cautioning uh, you know, friends here in the U.S. against saying, oh, well, people will wake up about the Inflation Reduction Act and realize this is a disaster. We thought this would happen in, the, in Europe. It doesn't happen because you have so much already created wealth which you can burn. Essentially, we are destroying capital at the moment to survive. So we're eating the accumulated wealth of several centuries, possibly millennia, actually. Uh, and 
at the moment the consumer doesn't necessarily feel the pain. In large part, of course, obviously, because we're buying imported consumer goods from China with borrowed money. So GDP appears to be relatively high. But the real economy underneath is not looking good. I think there are plenty of signs of societal decay. We have very much reduced productive capacity in Europe. Much of it's migrated to Asia uh, with its carbon emissions. Uh, carbon emissions are one of Europe's most successful exports of recent decades. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, ha-ha. Uh, uh, so that the public may not wake up in that way. And that may be the case here in the US, particularly because the subsidies are so large that you create a large vested interest group which is prepared to lobby against any changes to the green policies, which has certainly happened in Europe. And you can see it already here in the US. So the promises of these very large transfers under the IRA here are beginning to buy off large parts of the American yep. population who would otherwise see their interests threatened. So there are bribes aplenty in the early stages of the coercion, which may mean that you go down this track for a very long way before you become aware of what a disaster it is, as we are now realizing in Europe. By that point, it may be too late to come back gracefully or easily at all. You may be now have got momentum on the downward track. Remember, growth is quite slow. You climb slowly, but you fall quite fast. And you know, we may not actually be able to recover easily or indeed perhaps at all from this. So don't bank on a public awakening in Europe. Don't think there's going to be spontaneous resistance in the US. You've got to stop it now right. before it gets to it. Okay, so, so with that, um, and you know, we may end up, I, and I think I'm going to take the moment to, we're going to break this, we're going to break this podcast into two parts um, for listeners. So we're going to, we're closing segment of, of part one here. So thank you all for listening.